I have one of those smartphones, some of you do, and my phone likes to think that it's smart enough to tell me where I'm headed. Uh, so it's doing this predictive thing. But one of the things that's funny about it is that instead of heading daily to Hope Church, it says that I'm heading to a local tavern here across the street. So uh, some of you know, I, I'm afraid that my insurance rates are going to go up at some point, right? But can you imagine when Pastor Jim read the passage earlier about the fact that the other nations heard the praises of God's people and, and that it was palpable, that you, you couldn't ignore it. Can you imagine if we were so loud that the tavern across the street had to call up and say, hey, could you guys just keep it down over there? I, I think that that's what this is all about today, right? That we've gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to give him the praise and glory that he deserves. And we're celebrating today. We're celebrating the end of a series, not because it's over, um, but we're, we're celebrating the end of a series where we've studied God's handiwork and how he designed this process of restoration that wasn't just about a physical wall, but it was about what God wanted to do in and through the lives of his people to bring himself glory and honor. Do you guys remember the early prediction of those who were around Israel that, that one man said, and, and this was kind of one of those flaming arrows that's from a distance, a mortar that's shot off from a distance that, that he's so far away, but he, he says the statement, oh, what, what are you guys going to rebuild these walls? And, and once they're rebuilt, that it won't take but a fox to climb on those walls and for them to come tumbling down, right? That was his prediction. And today, what we're going to see is that these walls are built strong enough that there's going to be an army, there's going to be a marching band that's able to travel around these walls and to glorify God for what he'd done. You know, there's a, a lot of predictions that are out there that aren't exactly accurate. I love this in the quarterly review of 1825. It was said this, what can be more palpably absurd than the prospect held out of locomotives traveling twice as fast as stagecoaches. <laughs> uh, palpably absurd. That's great. You should add that into your vocabulary. I, lo I love this. Um, Dr. Dionysus Larder said this in 1859. He said, rail travel at high speed is not possible because passengers unable to breathe would die of asphyxia. <laughs> They're going too fast. The, the, they can't even breathe. I like this as well. Um, this was a teacher saying this to a parent about his son. It doesn't matter what he does. Your son will never amount to anything. That was Albert Einstein's teacher to his father in 1939. Probably my, my favorite of these is uh, this statement in the New York Times, 1939. It said this, TV, TV will never be a serious competitor for radio because people must sit and keep their eyes glued on a screen. The average American family hasn't time for it. You, you probably have heard the story of Michael Jordan. The last that I'll share with you is Michael Jordan, when he's a sophomore in high school, that his, the varsity coach had checked him out and decided that he wasn't worthy of a spot on the varsity team. And that prediction was so bad that actually more people came to watch Michael Jordan play on the JV team than they did on the varsity team. So there was a, a, an individual that stood back and made a prediction. The prediction was that these walls are never going to be rebuilt. And, and so in the face of that, what we get to see this morning is we get to celebrate 
with the Israelites that, that there's a dedication, a setting apart of these walls for the purpose that God had designed for them to be. But the problem that comes in the midst of this dedication is that there might be a belief that the hard work is finished, that they'd accomplished the task, they, they've repopulated the city, that they've done this great thing. And if they believed that the hard work was done, unfortunately, what we get is this weird last chapter, chapter 13, that, that is this ominous warning about the fact that in 12, they finished this thing. There's this great praise service. It's awesome. They, they say this so strong that it was able to, to be eight feet wide in most of the sections. The walls have been, they've done this miraculous thing that only could have happened if God was involved in it. And then what's going to happen is that we're going to see in the history of Israel that the people revert back to the ways that they were doing before the wall was rebuilt. They're going to return back to the actions that forget the Sabbath. They're going to neglect taking care of God's temple. That they're going to revert back to the stuff that was just their pattern. But I want you to catch this this morning. If you track with me in this sermon, you're going to see that, that what's different about this than every other cycle that seems to happen in this, this process of seeing individuals who repent and then kind of forget about it and repent and kind of forget about it and is that Nehemiah really believed that it was possible for them to live the kind of lives that God wanted them to be. He believed that revival was possible. And all these people, they're just moving back into the pattern, forgetting the promises that they'd signed on the dotted line. And what we see from Nehemiah is ultimately, he's like, this is so important that I'm willing to pick fights. I'm willing to, to dive in there. It's too important for us to neglect the fact that this is about the glory that God deserves. So his prediction about the obedience of God's people is the one that's fulfilled beautifully, but yet it comes at a tremendous cost. So it feels like the work is finished because we're celebrating, but what we accept is the hard work has yet to be done. Uh, Pastor Jim read this a few minutes ago, but if you pick up with me in Nehemiah chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Now I'm going to pre-apologize. In order to tell this story today, I want to I share with you, we're going to bounce around in these two chapters because I want to share with you part of the story that is what happens when the people celebrate. But I also want to share with you what Nehemiah observed and how he helped to restore the people back to the commitment that they had made originally. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, verse 27, Nehemiah 12 and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places. They gathered them together to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. I, we, we, laugh. We, we might have some of those here, but in, the, in these days, this was a direct reference to the very instruments that King Dave used, David used to, to lead worship in the temple of God. This is this is God's stuff. This is designed to bring God glory. And they're going to do this great thing to celebrate God's abundant provision in the Lord. And that's okay. This is great. This, this part of us that says that we're going to celebrate his provision is extremely important. And there's a part of this that we're just saying, Lord, we refuse to, to ignore the fact that you've provided for us. You remember that there was this man, Tobiah, in chapter 4, verse 3, who stood on the outside and he said, he said there's no way that this will ever be re rebuilt. He, he mocked them. And here in this grand finale, they, they celebrate the fact that, 
that it's, it's this beautiful restoration. We see the actual celebratory story pan out in front of us that Nehemiah sends one group of individuals up north and, and to go clockwise and another to go south and counterclockwise to gather together at the temple walls. I, I love that the beginning place of this, this map is way too far for you to see and I'm sorry. Uh, but, but in the section that's kind of on this side of it, what, what, what happened was that they went in counterclockwise ways. They connect together and then they have this party together. Then the party is described like this in the scripture. It said that both of the choirs who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half of the officials, they're just, they're just celebrating the goodness of God. And they offered great sacrifices that day and they rejoiced and God had made him re them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Like you couldn't ignore this, right? This is, this is one of those times I, I love to sing loud. I don't sing well. Um, but I think that, the, that uh, the people who sit near me are shaking their heads. That makes me nervous. Um, but uh, the, the, do you get what was happening here? Is that they're just declaring publicly to God and to the nations around. Can you imagine those nations? We know the stories that there were a number of people outside of the wall that didn't want this restoration to happen that they had through direct persecution, through indirect persecution, they had been involved in trying to hinder this rebuilding process. And now it was finished. The walls had been restored. And you know what I love about the text is that in Nehemiah chapter 2, 13, this is the very physical place where Nehemiah had prayed originally at the, at the place of considering what was gonna happen. We're told that in the original passage that he, he prayed, that he observed. And it, so it starts there. And now I can't imagine the joy that he felt from seeing this, this city be restored in a record time. Do you remember we said that with modern tools today, with the level of destruction that had happened there, that they say that this would have been impossible, would be impossible for us to do today, but through individuals taking tremendous responsibility that, that this miracle was done. It couldn't have happened without the work of God. And these individuals followed the leadership of God. They took the next right step. They, they didn't necessarily have an easy experience, but I love what the text says here, that it says that they experienced, they rejoiced with a great joy. This, this great joy is important for us to remember. You know, great sacrifices to a great God can result in a great rejoicing. And they're experiencing this. It's overflowing on their lips. They're praising the Lord. And the rejoicing of, of Jerusalem was so loud that it couldn't be ignored. It's important for us to notice as we read these verses that, that this wasn't a repayment for their past obedience, but God's blessing here is a provision for them to use his provisions to bring himself glory and honor. God's gifts are not payment for past obedience. They're resources, blessings to us for a new obedience. The Israelites were embracing this gift. They're celebrating with joy. They're paying it forward in a way. They're, they're saying this is about what's next and what God's going to do. In the text, this phrase, on that day, is repeated over and over again. And you know what they do on this day of celebration? They, they go back to some of the things that we've been seeing them do. They're, they're making new commitments. They're saying they're going to prioritize the care of God's temple. They're, they're going to lock in. They're going to do this stuff right. 
And it's not but just a few verses later that it feels like they've forgotten everything that they've committed themselves to. It's going to be in historically an event that's going to take place where Nehemiah returns back to Artaxerxes, the man who, the king who had originally sent him. And he's going to return back to his role. We don't know for how long, but in the time that he's away, kind of like the Israelites when Moses is on, is on um, the mountain, that they, they forget their God. They, they return back. They do this thing where they somehow make what was about God's glory, ultimately about his glory. It's so fascinating to me as they conclude this celebration, as we see it listed in the text, that, that they, at that moment, before it was done, they, they took the law of Moses, they read it, they, they celebrate it, that there's this, this learning, and we saw this in Nehemiah 8, we see this elsewhere, that they're taking God seriously, God's word seriously. You know, when it comes to revival in our lives, when it comes to revival in a church, it's my belief that it always begins with God's word being taught clearly, that individuals personally accept that. What we know is that Nehemiah understood the message. What we don't know is if the other individuals had taken this personally enough to be able to make this truly about their story. So on that day, they study God's word together. They, they make commitments that they... They describe to, to one another, what does it mean for us to remain faithful? You remember one of the New Testament descriptions of a believer is that we ought to be people who are in the world and not of the world. And one of the great temptations, and this is one of the great temptations of every one of us in this room, is that it was possible for people who had been designated as God's people to just look like everybody else, to, to, to just merge with the society that's around them, that, that people would not know that there was anything distinct about them. And what we see in the text is this warning, stop that. There's a, there's a uniqueness to worship to God. He deserves our best, that we don't just assimilate with everyone around us, especially the foreign gods that are around us. But instead, what we can do is we can be people who are in the world and yet are not of it. And in the text, it talks about not associating with Canaanites and Moabites. But you know what's beautiful about God's word is that, is that this is not about their ethnicity, this is about their faith. And what's beautiful about it is that we know in God's word, when we study the story of Rahab and of Ruth, that they're from these nations and God uses them and they assimilate into the Israelite community because of the fact that they've embraced the living God. The one true God refuses to share his glory with other so-called lower G gods, especially those of other nations around. So here they've dedicated the walls. They, they've done this act. It's, it's beautiful. There's a celebration that happened. And as the party is over, Nehemiah is going to return back to Artaxerxes. Geographically, he's going to travel back to the place that he had left in his position of influence and authority. And what's going to happen as that dust settles is that the individuals that are left behind are ultimately going to be put up to a test. What is your personal convictions. You already signed on the bottom line. You already said that this was important to you, that you said that you're all in. You even said this. You said, let there be curses to fall upon me if we don't fulfill the commitments that we've made today. The tragedy of it is that when Nehemiah left, that they ultimately reverted back to the very things that had defined them as a nation before this. 
I want to use two illustrations. One of them, I was uh, going from, uh, when I was in college, we had a rule at our school for the first year that you couldn't have a car on campus. So uh, my car, um, which was a little junky car, sat in my parents' house for several months and it was unused. And I can remember uh, dusting that thing off to go to have breakfast with my brother and I'd been driving and I noticed some things that didn't look a little right, maybe some little shreds of paper inside. And uh, I remember asking a friend, like, you don't think there's something like living in my car, do you? Uh, and he said, oh no, there's no way. I mean, you've been driving it for a couple of days now. Well, sure enough, I'm driving to Bob Evans with my, to have breakfast with my brother, Chad. And there is a mouse that's in the passenger side of the floorboard. And I shrieked like a schoolgirl. He shrieked like a schoolgirl. Like it was this awesome moment, ah, you know? And so then when I got to Bob Evans, I went over to Walmart and I got him a little pillow and some cheese. No, like what, what I did was I got a mouse trap, you know? And, and I ended our relationship. <laughs> When, um, you may have heard me say this before, but when Allie and I were living in another country, um, we were invited over to a family's home for dinner. And uh, they had, uh, as I'm eating, I dropped my fork. And, um, and so, and, like, I think that the right thing to do in this nice day is, like, I'm not going to make anybody get up. I'm just going to go to where I think the silverware drawer is, and I'm going to get a new fork, right? You guys picture this? Uh, maybe I wasn't doing the right thing because as I get up to go reach for what I think is the silverware drawer, everybody in the family says, stop. They said, that's where the cockroaches have taken over. <laughs> they literally said, you can ask my wife. They literally said that, that the cockroaches have won in that section of our, cab our cupboards. Now, now you're like grossed out and you're like, now think of us eating the rest of our meals. One, <laughs> wonderful family. But, but I, I love this contrast of these two things is that for Nehemiah, what he said was he said, like, we're going to do everything it takes to end this. Like, this is too important. We don't tolerate this stuff in our life. We, we make a, a real break from the stuff that was a part of our life before but what, what is appalling about that illustration, for some of us, we're grossed out by it, but when it comes to our faith, when it comes to convictions in our life, when it comes to sin in our life, it's possible that for some of us, we've just written off entire sections of our lives. And we just say, you know what? That doesn't, it doesn't mesh together with everything else. We, just, we, seg we attempt to segregate that from everything else. And, and the message of Nehemiah, the message of God's word, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ is that it's all meshed together, right? You can't just have them both. You have to accept the fact that there's personal responsibility and the work to evict the cockroaches in our lives is something that God wants to be intimately involved in, but it's something that he expects for those of us who are going to experience the palpable joy that he's told us that is a possibility in our life. So Nehemiah has already decided whatever it takes, it's gonna, we're gonna do it. We're gonna evict those things. But for us and for the Israelites, there's a question that's there. What are we gonna do when we're tempted again? Well, the tragedy is that unfortunately they decided to ignore the commitments that they had made and they reverted back to the things that they did. This, this first section is, is hard to read because 
It's just like you just see them making something that was intended to be about God and his glory, and they, they allow it to somehow become about them. They were neglecting the worship that God deserved, the, the very storehouses that were designed to hold the gifts that people were giving to bring God glory and honor are now empty. So empty that they decide to move out the vessels that are intended to hold those things. And, and a dude lets his family member move in to the temple of the living God. It's, it's this weird description, but well, let's just see what it says in the text. And, and chapter 13, beginning in verse four, it says, now before this, Elishab the priest and his appointed, um, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, verse five, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes and the grain and the wine and the oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and the gatekeepers and the contributors for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king. So the reason why I'm bouncing around text here is that it kind of weaves Nehemiah's portion of the story through the Israelites. And, and I want us to focus for a second on the fact that what they ultimately did was they just said, you know what, we're just going to go back. So in this case, it was a bizarre story of him literally making room for his, his family member, the priest, to live in in the, the designated space that was designed for God. So they kept for themselves what they had voluntarily designated for the Lord, not just in the temple, but also the offerings were not there to fill those vats and storage spaces. Next thing that we see in verse 10, chapter 13, verse 10, and then to 15 and 23 is they disregard the Sabbath. So in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 10, what we see is that it says this. It says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who, didn't, who did the work had fled each unto his field. And uh, one of the countries that we had visited um, had the privilege of speaking to some pastors. In that country, when you graduate from seminary, you are given a plow, um, not just a degree. And the plow is so that you can grow crops in your backyard in order to feed yourself and your families because your church is probably not going to be able to support you in, uh, in raising the church's flock. In this case, this is not about a lack of wealth in Israel. It was a, a lack of individuals choosing to apportion them properly. And so what we see is that those who depended on the provision of the people so that the work of God could be done had ultimately decided they were going to stop fulfilling their commitments. Verse 15, it says this in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treating, uh, treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Remember what this land was described as, is the land flowing with milk and honey. They, they were provided for abundantly, but, but did you catch what it says? It says it's on the Sabbath. They had committed themselves to not do this stuff on the Sabbath. And so they go right back to it. In verse 23 and 24, it talks about how they assimilated themselves in the culture that was around them, forgetting their worship of their God. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women, 
of Ashdod and Amnon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So they had embraced the false religions, the lowercase g gods that surrounded Israel. Do you guys remember when we studied this together that they, like, they were warned, like, the day's going to come, you're going to have a choice to make. And the choice that they made was to go right back to these false things, these empty things. So, so you wonder, how is Nehemiah going to return, right? He's been away. We don't know how for, a lo- for how long. Uh, we, we know that the way the narrative pans out, that, that Nehemiah is going to return back. I, they say this about Nehemiah's first return, was that he's in rebuild mode. And on this return, Nehemiah, on his first visit, he'd been a whirlwind. On his second, he was all fire and earthquake to a city that had settled down in his absence to a comfortable compromise with the Gentile world. I like that phrase, comfortable compromise. As Christ followers, that tendency for us to just get comfortable, that tendency for us to forget that the Lord Jesus Christ is the hope of the nations. He's the most important thing about us. He is our privilege to generously generously share to a world that desperately needs it. Ultimately, they'd forgotten it. But Nehemiah, because he's a true leader, he comes in and Nehemiah's gonna ultimately stand alone. The Israelites had forgotten about their commitment to God, but God and Nehemiah had not forgotten this commitment. That Nehemiah firmly holds these individuals accountable to the very promises that they signed their names on, that they were committed to. And he takes this so seriously. In chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, it says this, And after some time I had asked leave of the king, we don't know how long, and came back to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that they had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house. When he's writing this, when you're supposed to read this, you're supposed to be like, oh my goodness, they did what? That they're aghast, right? And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering, the frankincense. He refused to just say, ah, they're just being themselves. Instead, he said, we're going to do whatever it takes to get this back to the way it's supposed to be. Does that remind you of any other time in the history of the world? A couple hundred years later, the Lord Jesus is going to walk into that very temple. And and on your Bibles, it's going to say at the top in the description, the cleansing of the temple where the Lord Jesus walks in and he sees people who are exchanging money and taking advantage of the unique sacrifices that take place in order to honor God. Do you remember the words that the Lord Jesus says as he's turning over the tables of the money changers? He's furious in that moment with righteous anger. And he says, my house shall be called a house of what? A prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So here, the cleansing of the temple by Nehemiah foreshadows what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do in that very geography. And here we see Nehemiah going on. Dude does not mess around. In verse 11, uh, he says this. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations and then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, while, um, oil, um, oil, wine, and oil into the storehouse. So he restores their, their opportunity to keep giving to God their first fruits. 
And then later in verse 17, it says this, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all of this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. In our day and age, we say about people who do things like this, that they're judgmental. We say that they're harsh. We say that they're mean. But do you understand that this act that Nehemiah is doing as he's standing alone is actually something that's completely gracious. He's saying, God's worthy of our best. Stop functioning this way. Stop it before we find ourselves outside of the joy of the Lord, but experiencing the wrath of God. Goes on to say, and I confronted them and I cursed them. When I say he doesn't mess around, like literally he's plucking people's beards hair out. Um, so we're going to practice that this morning. Uh, I, don't, I don't recommend this part, but I, and I confronted them, verse 25, and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out the, do you think Nehemiah cares about this? He's, he's like, this is too important for us to not get right. And I made them take an oath in the name of God. He believed they could change. You don't do this. You remember what the Lord says? He says he disciplines those whom he loves, right? Like you don't do this if you don't believe that people can change. But Nehemiah believes in his heart that they can get better. He, he remembered the commitment that they made. This is what we saw back in chapter 10, verse 29. It said, join with their brothers and nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, and his rules and his statutes. That was their commitment. That's what they signed up for. Nehemiah is not putting something new on them. He's actually just saying, live up to what you committed yourselves. I like that Nehemiah, I, I see this, this truthfulness in his experience that he feels really alone right now. And he ultimately says, Lord, would you remember me? Remembering in scripture often is associated with God. God, would you just act, please? Would you, would you work on, our, on my behalf? Would you help these people? Would you be the God of grace that I know that you are? Remember this also in my favor. Oh my God, I, I, I hear him saying this and I think that he's saying something that is saying, I'm going to stand alone, but I'll stand with you, God, if that's what it takes. I will do it alone. Nehemiah repeatedly asked his Lord to remember him. And I love, love this in conclusion, that, that what we see with Nehemiah, remember earlier in the quote that I read, that they, they had that reverted to comfortable compromise with the world that's around them. They just, they just fit right in. They were comfortable. But here, what we see, um, that what John Darby says, is he says, we see in Nehemiah a heart that habitually turned to God, that sought its strength in him, and thus surmounted the greatest of obstacles. That's how he chose to live his life. So churches, we try to apply this truth in our life, this ancient truth that is extremely relevant to our lives today. We have things to rejoice. We have times that we can say, God, thank you for your faithfulness, and we ought to be people who celebrate in his faithfulness. The thing that we have to avoid is allowing there to be um, these times where 
the private lives, the things that, that happen behind the scenes, the things that we look at and we say, you know what, that, that's, not, that's not God's stuff. Like that we allow that to mesh together and to accept that this is what God wants of us. He wants the whole deal. He wants us to celebrate in him and experience his joy, but he also expects us to live in a way that gives us the privilege of experiencing his blessing in our lives, even if we're the only person standing. There were people that surrounded Israel that, that did not believe that the walls could be restored. There were people that were inside Jerusalem that didn't believe that the other portion of it, the harder portion of it was possible. And they were ready to just go back to their old ways. But what I believe is so beautiful and what I pray for each and every one of us, starting with me, is that I believe that it's not too late for God to do a restoration process in each of our lives through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's possible that you and I can experience a new life based on the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it can't be somebody else's convictions. It can't be another leader's. It can't be someone else's decisions. But ultimately, it's yours. That's what he wants to do in our life. He wants to do a work of restoration as we commit ourselves to being faithful to him. Would you join me in prayer as the worship team comes forward and as we close this time out? Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Nehemiah that has had so many truths. And, and as we even reflect on Nehemiah, I just thank you for the example of an individual who we really don't see where he dropped the ball too much. Even in these last few verses, we see that he was a man who seemed to get it right. And I just want to thank you and praise you for that, that Hope Church is filled with people like that, that this, um, this church is committed to being people of your word, that, that we ask, Lord, that as a church body, that we wouldn't be people who just tolerate evil and let things go, but instead that we do everything in our power to take you at your word. We love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of even closing this time out in prayer. And all God's people said, amen. amen.